Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. With me today, we have our special guest coming all the way from Poland, Jacob Andrzejewski, I think. I know I mutilated that last name, so say it again so everybody can hear it correctly. Yeah, so it's Ye- uh, ja- Jakub Andrzejewski, like the full Polish name, Andrzejewski. but you can you can uh, uh, contact me or, or ask me or name basically me, yeah, Jacob Andrzejewski. It's, I think, much easier for everyone. Very good. Uh, and I think it's also worth noting that with Jacob today, we have his two cats. Uh, we have Felik and Bushka. Uh, Bushka is recovering from some recent um, typical feline surgery, shall we say. Uh, so uh, she's been fixed, and so can't see her, but uh, Felix is a very large tabby. So with that, we will delve into... Oh, I'm sorry, before I forget. And Jacob is coming to us from Poland. And tell us the name of your city so I don't mutilate it. Uh, so it's Wrocław, but you can say Wrocław. It can be easier as well. Love, as in brought love. Yes, he was mm-hmm. telling me that around his city, they have uh, signs that help uh, make clear the pronunciation for the tourists that come through so they don't mutilate the name <laughs> like I just probably did. <laughs> no worries, so, you did great. <laughs> so today we are here to talk about performance, uh, in particular in Nuxt and View. Um as with any JavaScript tool, sort of the, it's always, I don't think it ever goes away. It's always sort of a hot topic with JavaScript frameworks, uh, whether it's server-side stuff or whether it's uh, SPAs that are completely in the browser just because of how they, uh, downloading JavaScript to the browser impacts speed and performance of your of your website. So what we're gonna do is talk about performance in general. Uh, we'll talk about some of the tools that are used, and then we'll get into the specifics of some options that we have for uh, improving performance in View and Next, since there's a View podcast that seemed like a good thing to mention. So, Jacob, take it away. Sure. So, talking about performance is usually a quite interesting thing to do because performance is one of those um, area topics or, or general topics about developing a modern website, similar to concepts like accessibility, security, scalability. So this is like a concept that it's not like a Boolean value that you can just enable it and it just works out of the box. All of these things are processes. So in order to have a performant website, good performing website, what you need to do is basically take care of this performance from the very beginning of the project. So in order to have a performance store, you can just you know, work on your like e-commerce store, let's say. You can work on it for a year without measuring or checking the performance and then going live into production with it and then verifying whether the performance is good because then it's just too late. You have made too many changes and too many, you have developed like the whole application from scratch and basically it's too late. So what you can do instead is um, utilize the, the culture of measuring and checking the performance from the very beginning 
of the project development. How to achieve that? And what are the metrics that you should take a look at? And what are the, let's say, possible improvements or mm, yeah, improvements that can, that can help you have a better performance in general? as well as modules and plugins. I will probably talk about more in the next parts of this, of this podcast. So maybe I will start with uh, something, something general in terms of performance. So how I understand it, how I understand this, this, this topic or this term. So considering the performance, we usually think about like the Lighthouse score. What we do is we just run the DevTools in our browser and we are just running the Lighthouse, which is one of the tabs there. And we can just select the Performance tab and we see after a few seconds when our website was audited, audited, yeah, the audit was conducted <laughs> on this website. Um, and we see the result. And we usually only take a look at the, this general overall number. And we see, for example, let's say 99, because our website is really performant. But this number can be misleading because is 99 good, or let's say different way, is the score of 70 of performance good for blog? And is it good for e-commerce website? Because the problem here is that we have this common number that we are using to measure all types of websites, all types of, of um, web applications. When in reality, those websites can work in a very different way. So basically you can have e-commerce that is fetching data from the e-commerce platform, like data about products, categories, promotions, users and a lot of stuff. And you can have a really static blog where you have free posts or free like readme files, or not readme, uh, MD files, sorry, markdown files that are then trans transformed into like HTML files. And is it fair to compare this e-commerce website with this blog and just say, ah, this e-commerce is pretty slow. It has only 70 points. And to be honest, having a score of 70 in e-commerce is quite good. Like you would like to have this kind of score, especially on mobile phones, because on mobile, it's usually much, much worse. So for me, the performance is not about this magic number that we, I think majority of the world is now seeing as the, as the, like, is it, is this website performant or not? So how I treat performance is usually about the users. So if the website has a good score when you are testing in locally with Lighthouse, it can, it can have a great score. It can have 99 in every possible, um, let's say, conditions, right? Different pages, different devices. It can have like 99. But you have to remember that if you are doing this kind of test for, for this website, what you are doing is that you are using your local machine. So your like 64 gigabyte, gigabytes, gigabytes, I don't know how to pronounce this, <laughs> RAM 
device can basically achieve a score of 100 even on a very old WordPress website without any modifications because it has a lot of um, computation power or, or, or resources that it can use to load the page really, really fast. But reality is that in big projects, you usually have also those users who don't have such a good devices. They're using old phones that they might be using slow, let's say, 3G connection, 3G connection um, internet connection. And for them, what you will get is they will have much worse score, even this Lighthouse score. So what Google and, and um, let's say, other folks in the web performance area always try to, to um, let's say, educate is that there are two types of data, like performance data that you can get and analyze. You have the lab data and you have the field data. So lab data is, for example, what you can get from running Lighthouse in your local environment for your project, just on your machine. This is only for your device, with your computation resources, with your like RAM, memory, and so on and so on. And this is the result. And the second one, or this lab data can be also achieved by running a Lighthouse test in the browser. This is like the second, uh, not the, in the browser, but from the website, because you can also run it programmatically from, from, from the website to audit your website. So this is one type. The second type, which is called the field data. So the field data is the data that is coming from the actual users. So what Chrome is doing is uh, they, they have this thing, it's called uh, CRUX, or CRUX, I think this is how uh, Rick Viscomi is pronouncing it, which is a Chrome user experience. This is the, the longer version of the short, 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 shortcut, let's say, shortened. So what it does, it is um, storing data about different web applications that is retrieved from the real users who are accessing this website. So basically what it means is that with this CRUX, what you get is the data from the real users. So real users who are accessing your website and how they, what is their actual performance, not the performance that you are doing with the auditing tool, like with Lighthouse locally or through the, um, let's say, under the website is how your users are experiencing your website. So this is, I would say that whenever you can, use the field data. This is more appropriate for the users who are using your website than the, the lab data. But this is not only about the single number, like the overall performance score, because there are also several metrics that you can use or yeah, you can use basically to validate whether your website is performant or not. So you have things like Core Web Vitals, and I'm sure that majority of, of the audience will, will know what I'm talking about. You have things like 
largest content full paint and you have um, cumulative cumulative layout shift cls and other things as well and those metrics they are not single number like 70 80 99 they are values in seconds or they are also numeric values in some cases that are selected by google after a lot of research on modern websites, how they behave, how much time does it take them to load certain elements. So if we take, for example, at the largest contentful paint, so as its name suggests, suggests, is this main element on your page, on your homepage. How much time does it take for this element to be loaded? So if you have a lot of scripts, if you have a lot of things that are blocking the, the, the requests for this particular image, you will have worse score and also you, your users will have worse scores or worse perceived performance, basically. If we take a look at CLS, it's about the stability of your website. It's not, I would say it's not as related to the performance in general, but more about the experience of using the website. Because there are many examples of bad CLS when you have this homepage and you click on the, uh, let's say, checkout button or card button, and then the, um, the ad appears and is moving the whole page down and you click on the ad instead of the card. So we know examples such as this one. So CLS so shows us those kind of issues, how stable our website is when it is first loading. So this one is not as about performance as largest contentful paint, but it's quite useful to have or, or to deliver better performance, better experience, excuse me, to the real users. So we know about now we know about the performance, we know about uh, metrics, we know what we should look for in terms of the metrics, like field data versus lab data. So what tools we can use to like measure the performance? So we know already about the Lighthouse. I mentioned it and I'm sure that all of the audience will know about Lighthouse. It's very simple tool to use. We just click audit and we see the result in the browser. We don't have to go anywhere else. But Lighthouse gives you only the results that are coming from your website, from, from your device, sorry. So we are doing this audit locally and you just see the result. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Lighthouse is, is a really great tool and you should be using it because it delivers many, many, many useful information about your website. Like, apart from just the numbers, about the, the general performance result, about certain vitals, what you get as well is things like um, diagnostics and opportunities. So these kind of things are usually the things that you should fix or are considered to be things that could improve your performance. 
So basically, by running this lighthouse test, even locally, what you get is a sort of checklist of how you can make your website more performant. And I believe that it's really good developer experience and you should be using that. However, as I mentioned, you shouldn't be treating this as a single source of truth, more like one of the tools that could give you some knowledge and some data. Uh, but there are also other tools that I'm using on a daily basis. And one of them is PageSpeed Insights. So PageSpeed Insights is using Lighthouse under the hood, and it's also using this CRUX, like cracks. So it is combining both data, both lab data and field data in one, let's say, report, so that you can see the difference between the data from Lighthouse. So the data about your website that was, let's say, audited or the audit was conducted on the website in an isolated environment. And in the opposite, you can get the data from the real users. And there were many interesting scenarios there because for uh, some of, for example, the of our clients in, in Vistor from the component that I work for, we had cases like the result on the um, on the lab data, so in Lighthouse in an isolated environment, was let's say 60, 70. And for the real users, it was like 80 or 90. So this shows that majority of the users who are accessing this website basically have very good devices. <laughs> so they don't have to take care that much about um, supporting like slow mobile devices. And in the other case, what we had an interesting um, problem with was that in the lab data, the CLS, so the stability of the website, was uh, the, the value of this metric was zero, which means that the website is static. There is no movement at all. And because of that, and, and in the lab data, in the field data, sorry, there was like 20 or 30, like this, this magic number. So it shows that there is some movement. So we started figuring out what could happen because in an isolated environment, the website is stable, like it's static, it doesn't move. And for the real users, it was moving for some reason. So we started trying to, to figure out what could be the issue, whether this is some kind of uh, web plugins that are causing this, this kind of switch or, or um, shift. And unfortunately, we haven't uh, found an answer for that. And the next result of the CRUX shown that this error disappeared. So partly we are happy because there is no more error, but Party were also unhappy because we haven't found, we haven't fixed it. So it can probably appear one more time in the future. So we have tools like Lighthouse and PageSpeed Insights, but there are also many, many more tools like um, Web Page Test, 
like a speed curve. There's a lot of tools that are much more advanced and will give you much more data that you can analyze and see where in, or in what cases your application is, is failing in terms of performance. So those ones are more advanced. So from the very beginning, I would recommend to try Lighthouse and uh, PageSpeed Insights because they will do their work and you will have at least some, some feedback about your performance. But this is something that you should be or should be using on the website that is already running, like in production. PageSpeed Insights, unless you are using um, some kind of API, you have to use on a publicly available website. So it has to be deployed. It has to be in production. Lighthouse, you can use even on your local environment. You are starting your development server and you just run Lighthouse from your browser. So you can have in local environment and in the browser. However, there are also other scenarios where you can analyze the performance as well, which will help you achieve this more or less performant website. And one of the ideas um, that came to my mind in terms of having this additional layer of, of performance auditing was to actually implement the CICD, like continuous integration, continuous delivery process in Next.js by using Lighthouse. So how it works is basically you have this NPM package called LHCI. I hope that I pronounce it correctly. So it's Lighthouse CI. And how it works is it works as a command line. So you just run LHCI run, or I don't ex exactly remember the, the command, but I, I think it's, it's run. And you just pass it a configuration uh, file where you specify what, um, what page you would like to audit, what device you would like to use for this audit, how many runs you would like to, to take, like let's say three and the average and the score will be like average of three results. And you have many more of configuration options there. And what it will do is it will do a lighthouse test from your command line. So you will just receive the result in your, in your terminal, basically. So what I've thought about is that in order to have this process of continuous, let's say, performance auditing, this is how I call it, is you can implement it from the very beginning of the project development, like one of the first steps. You generate a view or next project. And the next thing you do is you add this LHCI package to your, to your project. You add this um, GitHub, GitLab, I don't know, Bitbucket CI script that allows you to perform or conduct performance auditing with this Lighthouse package after each pull request, after each push to the to the um, to the main main branch so that after doing this you get the the results basically whether this new pr for example new pull request broke something or whether it's better or performance so these are 
one of the, um, let's say, solutions on how you can have this continuous performance auditing. Yeah, I'll jump in here for a minute. I'd like to give your voice a rest there for a second. Um, I'll point out that, yeah, what, what what you're describing is, I think, I think a fairly standard setup uh, in terms of using uh, continuous integration to run your test for you when you commit. Uh, my, in my day-to-day, you know, we manage a fairly large view slash Laravel app, and that's how we have it set up with CircleCI in that uh, it's connected to the GitHub repos. And so whenever we push uh, to the repo, whether it's a new branch, whether it's an existing branch, you know, whatever, it has to run through all of our tests. And we have a whole bunch of uh, uh, tests that are, you know, front end tests as well as, as unit tests uh, for the back end code. And that, you know, and then in order for the code to be deployed, uh, wherever the situation may be, either whether it's to prod or whether to a, a staging site, all the tests have to pass. Um, and I'm sure that's configurable uh, in the CI, CD. I, I wasn't the one who set it up. Uh, I'm not much of a DevOps guy myself. But that way you make sure that uh, you're not deploying anything that's failing tests because if it's going to fail your tests, then more than likely it's going to fail for a user too. So, so yeah, this is... Uh, a pretty standard setup and very, very useful in that it does it for you automatically and you don't have to go into your command line and say, okay, run these tests and run these tests and and then do it. So uh, anyway. So I would say that it should, like performance auditing should be a process in developed in your, in your project from the very beginning, the same as Yoni tests, like end-to-end tests, like Prettier, Slint, things that basically are doing work for you. You don't have to, the only thing you have to do is to fix the issue when it appears. So if you have this kind of um, continuous integration implemented from, from the very beginning, you have things like Slint and Prettier. So code styling, having the, the same, um, let's say, linting settings for the whole project so every developer is developing the, the code the same way you have prettier uh, i mentioned already prettier you have uh unit tests you have end-to-end tests so it is checking whether you're maybe something changed in your application and from now on this one let's say function or method is failing so as you mentioned it can fail for uh you and it will most probably fail for the user who is using this functionality. So it's the same for performance auditing. If you have this kind of CI process, you will know before deploying to production or deploying a new branch that something is failing. Of course, this is not like 100% correct. You might have some like false positives for that. But it's better to warn you and just you know uh, tr- check it out and and uh, discover that it was it, it wasn't correct than the opposite way so believing that everything is perfect and then figuring out that it's really bad and you have to do like reengineering from from scratch and going back- backward like three months so this is my so summary you, let me ask you this let me ask you this question real quick before we go farther you know, with um, with 
front end testing, end end testing, as you call it, you know, playwright, a dusk, uh, Cypress, whatever, right? You've written your tests. Okay, I want this to do here. And I push this button, it goes to this page. I expect to see this text. If I click this button, then I go, you know, so on. So you have, and then your test, you say, I look, to, I look for specific things. And if this text isn't here in this place, then it's a failed test, right? And the same thing with unit testing. Uh, where, okay, I'm running this function and I expect this value to be returned here. It should be an array with so many items, whatever the case is, right? Mm -hmm. Those are pretty, um, I don't know what the term is I'm looking for, fixed criteria. Performance testing seems to me to be, it would be a little more ambiguous, right? So I guess my question is, how do you set standards for something like this uh, to tell you that something's failed? or that something passed, is it, you know, it's a 70 lighthouse score, you know, maybe, or it's a, a certain score on on the crux test, or, or how do you determine what's what's a failed test? And I'm, I'm sure it's gonna be very subjective depending upon the developer, the site, the tools that are being used, mm -hmm. Cor correct? So, very good question. Uh, I wanted to talk about it, but in, in a few minutes from now. So basically with things like lighthouse, uh, you can set a perform something what is called performance budget or budgeting in general. And these are the set of values that you define and whenever the result is, let's say, below certain certain value that you define in the performance budget, this action will fail. So it's something like with tests. If you write a test and it doesn't match, like the expected value is not, um, or yeah, the received value is not the same as expected value, you are failing the test. In here, the expected value is, let's say, largest contentful paint below two and a half seconds. This is like considered uh, very good or yeah, very good in, in, um, in Core Web Vitals. So you set this performance budget for largest contentful paint to be no more than two and a half seconds. So whenever a test is being done, being conducted, and the result is bigger, let's say three seconds, this test will fail. And we'll show you, okay, in this pull request, the largest contentful paint is worse than previously. Of course, this can be a matter of, um, let's, I would say, outside um, involvement. I'm not sure the, the word in English, but let's say that you have this test that is being conducted and the machine or the, the yeah, machine where this test is conducted can be affected by uh, traffic or um, by different tests and so on and so on. So this result might not be like 100% correct. So what we do to have this score better or more, let's say, correct, is we do uh, multiple tests at the same time. So we can configure this Lighthouse CI to tell him, okay, you will do the performance auditing for this website, and you will take this performance budget that I'm sending you from the, from the configuration file, and I want you to do, let's say, five tests and get the average from them. And if the average is above two and a half seconds, the, there is a probability that something was broken in this PR and we should take a look at it. 
so this is how how we are um, working with performance budgeting to have this kind of assertions for performance auditing with tools like Lighthouse, for example. I don't know if I, okay. I answered your question. Yeah, no, or... that, that perfectly, yeah, that answers it. I, I figured it had to be something like that. That's interesting that uh, I hadn't thought about that where you take average from multiple tests and put them together as compared to a hard and fast. Okay, if it passed this and it didn't pass this, it's failing. So right now, maybe I will switch to, to the second part of the topic that I wanted to talk about is uh, to get away a bit from the performance and move into uh, my favorite frame framework, which is Nux.js. Um, so it, what I do in Nux.js is I am an ambassador and insider. So it means there are two different terms for Nux. Ambassador is the content creator, while the insider is like contributor. So someone who can contribute to the core framework, is developing the modules that you can use for, for your um, upcoming Next application and so on and so on. So I really, when I first heard that there is uh, there are plans for Next free, I'm sure that majority of the users right now is using Next free because of the developer experience, because of the VIT support, which is fast out of the box and so on and so on. Uh, but I came from the world of Next too and especially very slow Nux2 applications. So when I first heard about uh, Nux3, which was really fast out of the box, I instantly fell in love with it. And I was like working with it from the time when it was first published, like the, the not even like release candidate version, but those first public versions of Nux3, which means that Almost every module and every aspect of the framework uh, wasn't working. So you had to figure out things by yourself. And what is especially uh, intriguing and interesting for me in terms of Next is that throughout the, I think there was like 14 release candidates, I think, for the Next 3, I developed a Next module before there was uh, the RC1 announced. So in the wild times of not even an RC version of Next. And since then, to the RC14 and actually the stable 3.0 version of Next, I only needed to do one change, which was basically change between private uh, runtime config to runtime config dot private. So the change was like one liner. And I was so amazed that the guys from Nax, like the, from the core team, managed to do things like this in a matter of 14 release candidates of the stable version of Nax. So it's amazing stuff. Like kudos to the core team and for, for Daniel, for, for Puya. Yeah, we've had uh, Daniel Rowe on here two or three times, I think, over the past year to talk about Nux3, him and another guy named Drew Baker, who's a big Nux mm -hmm. user at his agency at Funkhouse. So yeah, if you want some, they really got into the nitty gritty of some of the performance. I think Nitro is the engine, if I remember correctly, yeah, that exactly. they're using in, in Nux. So yeah, uh, we can put those episodes in the show notes, but there were 
uh, they really got into the nitty gritty of these performance improvements in Nuxt and how they work behind the scenes. And it went way over my head because I'm not a big <laughs> Nuxt user, but it was good stuff if you're really into that. Yeah, so um, now I would like to talk a bit about uh, what you can do in or what you should take uh, into consideration in terms of performance in Vue and Nuxt apps. So what I find like the biggest issue in modern front-end development and also coincidentally, co uh, yeah, I, I, I don't coincidentally. know. How, coincidentally. Coincidentally. Yeah, exactly. yeah, this is the correct word. <laughs> so what, what I find especially interesting is that the biggest problem and in, at the same time, the in my opinion, the easiest to fix are the images. Because you can have, you can, let's say, you are a full stack developer. So you have access to both the database and the CSS. So as a developer, you usually think, okay, so if I want to have a better performing website, I need to do some more optimized, uh, I don't know, SQL queries or do some kind of, implement some kind of, um, I don't know, elastic search for having a very fast uh, key per, um, key value pairs just to, to, to have faster searches or finding the, the right record faster. So usually think of performance improvements such as this one. However, in majority of the websites, I would say that the bad performance is not actually coming from, from the backend itself. Of course, there are cases that uh, the, the bad performance might come from, from poorly developed backend like connecting 20 times to database instead of one. I'm sure we, we know examples such as this one, <laughs> production-ready um, examples. However, I would say that, okay, maybe maybe not majority, but let's say often. And there are cases such as this one. So the problem can be caused by the images. And what I mean by the images, is not that the fact that they are there, it's the fact that we are using them in a not performant way. So let's say that we have a website. So we have a header and then below it, we have, let's say a banner with some kind of image and the text like the heading. And below that we have, um, let's say a footer with some kind of images. Let's say images in the footer, we have three people and the images of their faces. And this is our team. Let's say something like this. So imagine um, that we are fetching this website, like loading it. And what is happening is that because those images in the footer are in the source of this particular website, they are fetched at the load time because we, we need them to basically display them. But if you think from the user, user's perspective, do I really need those footer images from the very first load? I don't think so, because I will need them when I scroll down, because they're at the footer. And most probably the footer won't be like in my viewport, so what I will see at first time. So what um, I usually recommend to use is the technique called um, lazy loading images. So how it works is basically you can have the images and 
if you are using tools like um, Lozat.js, for example, or even native um, lazy attribute of the image tag in HTML, what you can do is you can defer sending this request for the image until the time that this image will be in the viewport. So the users will see it and then the request will be sent for the image. Uh, you might be surprised, but the um, performance improvements caused or, or um, yeah, let's say caused by implementing lazy loading for the images that are uh, below default can greatly improve the performance, both perceived and in the score. Because basically you are not sending requests for the content that you basically don't need. However, you have to be quite cautious with it because lazy loading images is very useful tool and you should be using, using it. However, make sure to not use it every time. Like I mentioned metrics such as largest contentful paint. So this, the biggest element on your homepage or on the, on your website that, um, should be fetched from the very beginning. You have to add a prior priority to it so that this image is loaded as fast as possible. So what happens if you add a lazy attribute, like loading lazy attribute to this element that is supposed to be lazy, uh, largest contentful paint? How it works is this image or the request for getting this image will be actually moved to the bottom of the, uh, let's say, requests stack. I don't know if, if that makes that, that name ma makes sense, but basically mm -hmm. the, the hierarchy of the requests. So instead of fetching this, this resource as fast as possible, ASAP, we are basically moving it to the very end which will cause your website to be loaded much slower. And I mentioned also images, uh, and it's not only about lazy loading them, it's also about the format. Mm, few years ago, using formats such as WebP wasn't, um, let's say, secure, because uh, there was still a thing like uh, Internet Explorer. Uh, I'm very happy that it's... Uh, I'm not sure if it's if it's dying or died already, I've heard that it's it's supposed to be like deactivated, but I'm not sure if it was done already or will it be done until the end of the year. No, no matter, I'm just happy that it won't be there with us anymore. However, I would say that uh, Safari, uh, the, the na native um, macOS browser, is becoming a second version or the next version of Internet Explorer for some of the functionalities that are there out of the box. So, yeah, I've, I've heard that argument made quite a bit. Um, you know, yeah, so far as becoming the next IE6. And I think for a while it was, I do know from what I've been seeing, there's a guy named Jen Simmons uh, who has taken over, I don't know what her role is specifically, I can't remember, um, at Safari with Apple. Um, but, um, She's done quite a bit. I know she's doing quite a bit of work on trying to get Safari caught up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, hopefully things are, will be getting better with her. I just remember her from when I was in the Drupal community years ago, she's always a big design person. Mm-hmm. Um, so from what I can tell, she's trying to get Safari caught up and hopefully they'll be, uh, doing that here pretty soon. Hopefully <laughs> I just, in, in my previous company, I was, um, uh, developing an e-commerce website where, um, I think 80% of the users were using Internet Explorer. So imagine in 2000 and was it 21, I think, developing for the I Internet Explorer, yeah. like corporations or government, maybe government entities or, you know, somebody who is really um, a Microsoft shop, you know, they would be roped into using that and, and they've got custom stuff written for Internet Explorer or excuse me, Explorer. <laughs> um, you know, Microsoft pretty much disavows it anymore, you know, uh, Internet Explorer. So I've been in places like that where they're tied into using Microsoft browsers and it was unfortunate, but you know, that's the user really don't have much choice. You know, it's the higher, the higher ups that make that decision, but you know, that explains some of that, that use that you see, or maybe used to see. Yeah. So uh, what I wanted to, to say from the very beginning is that we have those image formats that are basically lighter while they they deliver the same image. So if you have, let's say, PNG or JPEG, those images can be um, easily transformed into another format, for example, WebP, which is uh, more performant. And even right now, I think there is uh, AFIF, also another format, but I'm not sure if it's supported everywhere. I think WebP is like safe that will work in uh, Chrome, uh, Firefox, and other browsers. However, Aviv, I think, doesn't have yet full full support. So I think you can safely bet for WebP. And of course, you cannot always just, you know, convert your image into WebP. Sometimes you are fetching images from a different source, uh, from CMS or from e-commerce. So you can't really just say, okay, I will now use WebP because those images stored there are, for example, PNG. So what, what you can do is you can use um, tools like uh, Cloudinary, for example, mm-hmm. which is the di- digital, digital, digital uh, asset management. Digital, or yes. Digital, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and how it works is basically you can store the images there or you can send a request to Cloudinary and in response, you will receive a optimized image, different format, maybe some optimizations or maybe even some transformations, grayscale, rounded corners, whatever. Cloudinary will do it for you. So you can use stuff like that. And in a view or in next world, you have also one of my like f- most favorite modules to use with Nux. And I even created, uh, let's say, some sort of a, a Twitter poll about the most used uh, Nux modules. And I stated there that for me, like in my new projects, uh, what I usually use is I use the Tailwind module for styling, of course, and the image module because almost everywhere you will deal with images. And being able to deliver them in a performant way is really crucial, no matter if you are building a blog, 
or a portfolio page or e-commerce website, you always want to have the most or the, the, the best performing images. So with the next image, you don't need to use the Cloudinary. You can use it. There is one of the providers uh, support is Cloudinary, so you can use it without any issues. Um, however, you can also use the built-in IPX. Uh, I don't know the, the full name of it, but it's like the local image optimizer that you can use to optimize those images on the fly. So you can fetch the image from, let's say, e-commerce platform to your Next application. And with Next image, you can uh, optimize it and, let's say, change its format to WebP so that it's lighter and it's easier for the browser to load. So this is one of the key performance improvements that I'm recommending to anyone, basically. Yeah, if you're before we go on, I'll jump in here. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, one of the jokes I've heard before from uh, other web developers uh, on another podcast was that you have these people that will work on their performance, right? And they've got their JavaScript bundled, right? And they're working all these things. And then they'll download a huge image, you know, that takes <laughs> exactly. forever to download. And it's huge and just sort of squash on all your, you know, on all your other performance improvements because uh, you you've made all this improvements and then you, then it takes forever just to download this image that you've got in there. So um, now in terms of Cloudinary, Cloudinary is probably one of the more popular or well-known uh, image services that does that. And they're pretty cool because what, what it allows you to do is upload your image there. And I've used it on a project before. Uh, and then uh, using URL parameters, when you fetch your image, you can tell it, okay, I want it this length and I want it this width and I want it in this format and I want you to crop it this much and resize it and do all this stuff. And you just tell that with, with URL, things like URL parameters. So that way it allows you to dynamically fetch. You could fetch the same image in three different ways, depending on whether you want it size for like an icon on the left or a banner image or just an image in a blog post or something like that. And then some of the CMSs uh, will incorporate uh, whether it's Cloudinary or maybe other services mm -hmm. uh, that uh, do the same thing. And they'll incorporate it in there. So anytime you use an image, then it handles, you, you just have to put in your parameters and behind the scenes, it integrates with such and such a service. The one that comes to mind, one of the first headless CMSs I used was called Butter CMS. Uh, and they had a service integrated, it starts with an I image something. I think I can't remember what it is, but it handles that for you. So that's just, an awesome, it's a great tool to have in that it's, you're not handling the storage of the images. You know, you don't have to make space on your servers and take up server space. And, you know, you're just paying for, you know, it, depending on how much of a free tier they might have and how small your your project is. Um, but there are a number of them out there. I just did some quick Googling and found a blog post uh, that gives a whole bunch of other services that are very similar to uh, Cloudinary. Uh, whether it's thing as simple as Dropbox, uh, uh, there's one called Black Hole, <laughs> uh, File Stack, Pocket Base, even AWS Amplify. So there's lots of them out there. But anyway, so that's my uh, my speech on images there. <laughs> sure. So this is what I'm recommending to anyone. Basically, just think of the images first, and of course there are other optimizations and performance improvements you can have. You can have things like um, delayed hydration because Next 
by default, if you're using SSR apps, like server-side rendered, how it works, it's sending HTML to the browser, and then it's hydrating it with JavaScript. So with delayed hydration, what you can achieve is that you can take control of the, this hydration and decide whether um, or, or when to hydrate certain parts. So let's say that you have a button that will do some logic when you click on it. You can lazy hydrate it so that it will be hydrated with JavaScript on interaction. So when user clicks it. This is one of the, the, the examples of using the, the, the delayed, delayed or lazy hydration. It's quite similar concept to, to lazy loading. Basically, don't fetch the code or don't use the code that is not necessary for, for the time being, for the time when user is, is seeing something. What is next is, um, I will basically go through, through the modules. I just opened up my uh, performance, next performance series on um, DevTo. If you'd like to check it out, uh, it's basically, not, you will type next performance and you will see one of my articles. So we have things like delayed hydration. We have things like um, one of the tools that actually Daniel Rowe created, which is called Fontaine. And what is this tool does is you, it's using the uh, font, um, I believe it's called font, font override. Basically, when you are using a custom font, you are sometimes you you might see the um, the layout shift based of the font. So by default, you will get the the default uh, device font. Like um, on macOS or Windows, you will have different default uh, browser fonts. And then when the font will be fetched, this font will be replaced. And usually it can cause some kind of ACLS, like cumulative layout shift. So by using Fontaine, what it does, it is using the font um, font override. I, I hope that I, I name it correctly. If not, uh, yeah, shame on me. But um, this tool is really great. It basically doesn't need any configuration whatsoever. It's developed as, um, it's called unplugging. So it works the same way for Vite, for Webpack, and for ES modules, I think. So you'll download this plugin and it will work for any build tool that you are that you can use today. And it will add this font face rule automatically to your code. So you don't need to do anything. You just install it and you're making sure that this CLS caused by the font change won't be as um, as troublesome, let's say. What you can get as well is you can, mm, for example, I think majority of, of bigger websites are using things like analytics or any other third-party script that when you are seeing the Google Analytics or, or Plausible or any other third-party script in the, you're checking the official docs, what they say to you is, hey, just copy the script and put your put it in your website. Of course, is the easiest way to do it, but the <laughs> the fact that they are showing it from the very first like getting start guide or whatever, for me it's like the big no. Because okay, this is the fastest way, but it's also causing you to have problems later on. Because you will have those issues with, for example, Google Analytics that you will have to fetch the whole script 
so that your page can basically load and, and behave. So with Partitao, what you get is that you can move the execution of the script to the um, web worker. So it doesn't block the main thread of, of fetching and, and let's say creating your website. So you can have the functionality of Google Analytics without it blocking the, the execution of the script and basically creating your website. Quite useful stuff developed by, uh, by Builder.io. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the problem you're going to have. I mean, with any remote downloading of JavaScript, it's right. It's one more thing to, to download and run in your page, you know, no matter how much it's been minified or, you know, um, uh, improved in its structure. It's JavaScript that you got to download. And what's interesting is, you know, Google, I know for a long time, Google Analytics was, you know, the way to get analytics on on traffic to your website. And now there's, uh, there, are obviously, uh, there are other options. I know, for instance, uh, if you're using Netlify, which is a, a well-known plat- uh, hosting service, especially for Nuxt. I know I've used it for Nuxt sites in the past. Um, they have stuff that are like server-based analytics, which are probably going to be more uh, accurate, I think. But uh, uh, that way, it's just running on the server, and, and you're not having to load additional JavaScript in your page just to measure your your traffic. So there are other options, but but yeah, Google Analytics is probably the one of the first and probably the most well known tool for for measuring site traffic. So one final note from my side in terms of both general performance and performance in view and next. Just take example of laziness, concept like lazy hydration, lazy loading, lazy code code splitting and and lazy loading modules and so on and so on. And just think of it as if you don't need it, don't ship it. (laughs) It's very simple rule. If you don't need this code, just don't ship it. Make it code code splitted like your your application per root or per page. Uh, make things like lazy hydration, lazy loading. Just if you don't need it or the user does not need it from the very beginning or from the first second, just don't ship it. The best code is the one that you don't need to write. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, definitely more of an issue for browser side versus server side. Right, server side, you can probably get away with writing some extra code uh, a little more than in your browser because it's running before the content even gets to your browser. Yeah, cool. I think so. So we talked about Fontaine and Image, uh, right? Is there any other Next Performance modules or tips before we head to picks? Uh, I would say there's one. Uh, but I'm not sure if it's like um, still being used. It's like the Critters module. So Critters is the tool developed by Google that allows you to include the critical CSS um, in your inline like HTML in the head, so that it's loaded as fast as possible. So I know about this one, and I think that's all from from my side in terms of the. At least for the articles, I'm sure there are many other approaches. I've seen the module from Daniel Rowe about zero JS mm-hmm. that allows you to completely remove all JavaScript from your next application, which might mm-hmm. be useful for the static websites. 
but basically mm -hmm. won't work for e-commerce. <laughs> but right. it's also there are a lot of concepts that we can utilize. The modern modern website uh, recently also developed um, server components, uh, which are rendered on the server, and the change is actually caused um, and it's delivered as a request to the backend, to the underlying server, and then sending as a result the updated value, so that you have you don't have basically any JavaScript on the front end. You just have it on the backend, and then you send the request. The change is and being done there, and you just receive a new result, let's say a counter. You click on a button, and then you send the request, and then you, as a return, you get the new counter value, like plus one, something like this. So there are many concepts, and the ones I talked about here today were just the, the, the ones that I'm using, let's say, every day, and I'm finding them especially useful. Awesome. So I realized that one of the things I forgot to ask you at the beginning was tell us about yourself a little bit, who you are and why you're <laughs> famous and that kind of stuff. So uh, before we move on, can you give us a little background on uh, what you're doing there in Poland, who you work for and, and how you got into View Next, I guess? Sure. I'm not famous yet. <laughs> Just to clear this. Well, you will be out. after this. You will yeah, be after I'm sure. this. Right, I'm sure. sure. <laughs> so yeah, um, I work at View Starfront. And I work as a full stack developer. So I'm doing from coding from SQL and databases to CSS, which brings me the most joy. And apart from this, what I do is I'm a frequent contributor mainly to Next. That's why I'm also an ambassador and the insider there. I'm also an ambassador for Storyblock and Algolia. I developed a module for, for Next that allows you to very easily connect to Algolia. And for Storyblock, I this is my go-to in terms of using headless CMSs. I just like the experience. I like the guys who, who work there because we have we are meeting on almost every conference. So there is a good connection, let's say. And finally, uh, I'm also a Google developer expert in web performance from um, December last year. So not, not so much, <laughs> not too long, let's say. That's why awesome. the the interest in web, web performance. Yeah, I saw, I had seen your stuff on View Storefront as well, and I was going to ask you about that, but that sounds like it's a whole bigger topic. We might have to have you come back and talk about View Storefront. Can you just give us, uh, before we go, a real brief description of what View Storefront is? I mean, the name sort of gives it away, but if there's any sure. more details, you can tell. Sure. So. View Storefront is a um, front-end platform, I would call it, for headless e-commerce. So headless e-commerce or headless commerce is when you have your e-commerce website and you have the storefront, which is basically a front-end, and the e-commerce platform, which is a back-end, they are separated from each other. So you can have, uh, you can use e-commerce platforms are Shopify, BigCommerce, Commerce Tools, Magento, and they are completely separate from your storefront, from the front end. So view storefront is actually this storefront part, but it's not only about displaying data from, from e-commerce platform, because apart from just doing this, you also get integrations with stuff like CMSs, payment gateways, uh, search engines. So that's why it's called 
platform. It's not just the front end. It's more like a platform that you can use it and basically you get like the full experience of modern e-commerce website. So you have the storefront with the e-commerce data. You have the CMS with dynamically fetched data about the content. You have search uh, results from Algolia, for example, and many, many more. So that's why it's called platform, not frontend, not just frontend. Awesome. Brief, brief overview. <laughs> yes, yeah, looks, we might have to talk more about that. That's that's, that's fascinating. All righty. So with all of that, we will move on to picks. Picks are the part of the program where we get to talk about something other than tech if we want to, um, whether it can be books or movies or in my case, uh, dad jokes. Uh, so I'll start out. Uh, today and go right to the the dad jokes uh, of the week. So <clears throat> I got to find my list here real quick. I was in the wrong room. So uh, this morning, or yeah, not this morning, I was too busy this morning. The other day, uh, I went to uh, a store and it was a plagiarism score plagiarism store. But I tried to uh, to pay in cash, but they would only take credit. Right, take credit for other people's stuff. Right, that good one. Um, That's a really good one. <laughs> yeah. So here's a here's a deep thought, a question, and the answer might not be so obvious. <clears throat> if rubber comes from rubber trees and sugar comes from sugar canes, where does chicken come from? From pole trees. <laughs> That's P O U L, not P O L E. And then finally, you know. In the past, I've talked about some of the various jobs that I've had and reasons I got fired. Like uh, I lost my job as a bus driver because I gave a lady my seat on the bus trying to be nice. But uh, I once had a job making plastic Draculas, if you've ever seen those. Unfortunately, there were only two of us on the production line, so I had to make every second count. Right? That's every other count. So thank you. Those are my jokes of the week. They were really good ones. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I only I I I have a high bar when it comes to my dad jokes that I tell. There are many out there that I won't tell, but I, I try to select the best. So uh so what do you have for us? Any of your picks, Jacob? Um yeah, I think so. Not related to tech. Uh something that I got into um, a few months ago, which is uh Dungeons and Dragons. So this kind of uh, role-playing game where you are meeting with a group of friends. And basically you are, as its name suggests, you are uh, playing certain roles. But I haven't started it as, I, I have started playing this few years ago as a member. However, a few months ago, I started to um, join the sessions as the so-called dungeon master. So the dungeon master is a person that is actually creating a story is responsible for all the mechanics that are going on. So combat, um, some kind of ability checks, things like that. And also about um, taking the players through the story. So it's, it is especially interesting um, experience for me because I have never been such a, let's say, creative guy. I never really knew how to draw cool stuff, paint, 
sing, dance, or whatever. I, I, I'm not this kind of creative guy. So mm-hmm. becoming a dungeon master where you can be prepared for everything because you can have a schedule or, or, a, or a plan where you will take the players. You will take them to, let's say, a dungeon or, or a castle or somewhere else. But there is absolutely no way that you will predict what they will do. And I managed to find this out on my very first session where I started as a dungeon master, where I tell, told I have told the players, um, guys, you are on a ship and you are sailing to place X, doesn't matter. And I wanted it this ship to be a so-called resting place for the for the players so that they will start to interact with each other and just to know better their surrounding. And the first thing one of the players did was to run to the top of the ship and just find the, the guy who was on the top and ask him some questions. And in the Dungeons and Dragons, the dungeon master is role-playing each character that the players are meeting on the, on the journey. So I had to create the story <laughs> in my head in like half a second and just continue with it because the player was really intrigued what he will know from, from this guy on the top of the ship. And so I had to create this story on the go, just trying to, to basically create things from the top of my head. And eventually it was very interesting for that player to listen what I had to, to what I wanted to tell him. And I managed to create such a interesting story, even though I made everything up and I wasn't prepared for it. And the story itself wasn't even connected to the scenario that was prepared for the session. It was completely out of the box. But still, what matters is the, is the fun that both me and the player had. Even though it wasn't scripted, it wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it. I just went with the flow and he and also the other players there, they really liked it. And this is what is the best for the dungeon master is when both you and the players are having fun. So my pick- yeah, that takes that takes some creativity that I certainly don't have. You know, I've had I've had friends that uh, many friends that played it when I was growing up. You know, back in the eighties, and and the game is obviously you know continued and still around. But that kind of creativity where you can tell a story uh, off the top of your head is. Yeah, you wouldn't want me as a dungeon master. Let's just put it that way. Steve, I said the same. And look where, where I'm here right now. <laughs> I'm doing a dungeon master. So if I can do it, I'm sure you can do it as well. Okay, well, I'll take your word <laughs> for it for now. <laughs> All righty. So with that, we will wrap up this episode of Views on View. Before we go, Jacob, if people want to get a hold of you or follow all your words of wisdom or even give you money. Uh, what's the best place to do that? I, I would say the Twitter. I'm the most active there. It's at Jacob Androwski without any underscores, um, slashes and so on. It's just at Jacob Androwski. And mm-hmm. of course, on GitHub, where I'm publishing most of my open source work. And there is a difference because on GitHub, I'm called at Baroshem with B. B-A-R-O-S-H-A-M. It's difficult to, to say that in English. 
So Baroshim. Okay, um, and we will put those links in the show notes so that uh, you don't have to try to remember that spelling <laughs> or be writing it down as, awesome. as the podcast goes on. <laughs> uh, all right, well, thank you. Thank you to Felik and Busha for coming as well and, and joining us. And also, before we leave, we'd like to say thank you to the studio audience. Thank you, people. Always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming. And with that, we will wrap it up. Thank you, Jacob. And we will talk to everybody next time.